Dirt, the movie, is a surprisingly interesting documentary about soil, one of Earth's least appreciated but most precious resources, in what I am sure will be regarded as the crowning achievement of her acting career. Jamie Lee Curtis narrates the story of how Earth came to be blessed with such a resource of dirt and why it's important that we protect it. That thin layer of topsoil covering the surface of the earth is a result of billions of years of geological processes and is part of the reason that life has flourished on our planet. We wouldn't be alive without dirt. Even the author of Genesis records what scientists understand, that at a very basic level, uh, human beings are just a more sophisticated arrangement of dirt. As he writes, The Lord God formed the man from the dust the dirt of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. You and I are just dirt that has been animated by God. Dirt is more than the stuff that gets on our cars. Dirt is the stuff of life. Jesus actually seemed to understand this. Jesus was a man of the earth. Jesus stomped around in its dust. Jesus came from a small little village that was probably a farming community. And when Jesus decided that the time was right to go public and start teaching people about God and faith and the kingdom, he talked to people using language and images that he knew that they could understand. He described very esoteric spiritual ideas in simple ways, telling stories he knew that folks could relate to. And in one of Jesus' perhaps most famous lessons, he tells a story about very complicated spiritual realities using perhaps the most basic, the most fundamental thing that people in his day and our day could understand. He tells a story about faith and life and God using dirt. And it's not a dirty story. It's a compelling story about faith and judgment. We're in week three of our new series here at Rooftop. It's called True Story, Life-Changing Truths and the Parables of Jesus. Jesus came to earth as a teacher uh, to teach us about God and faith, and Jesus was a good teacher. And one of the things that good teachers do is good teachers tell stories, and Jesus told lots of stories. And we call these stories parables. During this two-part study, we're going to be studying about 30 of Jesus' parables. And this morning, we're going to look at one of the more important parables that Jesus told. It's the parable of the sower and his seed, or as we might more accurately describe it, it's a story of the four dirts. So let me read you the story. It comes from Luke chapter 8. Verse 4. Well, a large crowd was gathering, and people were coming to Jesus from town after town. He told them this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on. Birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground. And when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples, they asked him what this parable meant. He said, Well, guys... 
The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that, quote, though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. We'll get to that. This is the meaning of the parable, he goes on. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and saved, be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. It's a story of the sower. You might have heard it if you spent any length of time in church over the course of your life. You've probably heard the story of the sower. And it's a very interesting and very important parable for lots of reasons. First, it's actually one of a handful of parables that occur in three Gospels. Most of Jesus' parables occur in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, the fourth Gospel, doesn't include a lot of parables. Now, most of the parables Jesus teaches occur in at least one Gospel, maybe two, but there's only a handful of them that occur in all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So the fact that this parable is included in all three Gospels means that it was probably very widely circulated, very broadly discussed by the early church. Also, this is the only parable that Jesus actually interprets for his audience. Usually Jesus is content to tell a story and then just let his audience wrestle with it. Like any good teacher... Jesus wants his students to use their brains. He's like the teacher who writes this complicated math problem on the board and then waits for Matt Damon to come along and solve it. That's what good teachers do. We might prefer for God to spell things out for us and to solve uh, the math problem of our lives for us, but God actually likes likes us to use our brains. Now, even though not explaining his parables is Jesus' preferred tendency, he does actually explain this one, although he explains it in private. Jesus only interprets this parable when he is alone with his disciples. And he actually seems frustrated that he even has to do that. Uh, In a parallel telling of the parable in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark records the moment this way. He says, Jesus says to his disciples, Don't you understand this parable? How then are you going to understand any parable? Like, this is the most basic, simple parable, guys. How are you going to understand anything if you can't get this? Duh. Jesus was never really that impressed by his disciples. Then again, he did pick them, so I don't know what he was expecting. Now, the explanation of the parable is fairly simple, and you can understand Jesus' frustration with the disciples who don't get it. The parable is about a farmer who throws his seed onto four different types of dirt. Now, it's not really clear who the farmer represents. Jesus never really defines the farmer. He doesn't say, the farmer is God, or the farmer is me. The farmer could be any old preacher. The farmer could be you. The farmer could be anybody. Anybody sowing the seed. But he does identify the seed. The seed, he says, is the word of God. The seed is the message of salvation that Jesus came to earth to preach. Scattering the seed, throwing the seed, is the act of preaching the word. I'm currently, like right now, I'm currently scattering seed at you. Good thing I'm not throwing coconuts. We're not planting coconut trees. That could be bloody. 
Now, the four soils represent four different types of people who respond in four different ways to the preaching of the word. The seed that falls on the hard path, that represents people who hear the message of the gospel, but they just don't respond quickly enough. Eventually, like quickly, actually, the the birds or the devil come and take the seed away because the seed doesn't have time to grow. The seed that falls in rocky places represents people who hear the word and they receive it with joy. Initially, the seed sprouts up quickly, but then... In these rocky places, the soil has no depth. And when persecution comes, these people give up their faith pretty quickly. The seed that falls among weeds represent people who hear the word of God and they receive it well, but the distractions of money, the distractions of life's pleasures, the distractions of life, they choke any life out of the plant. Finally, the seed that falls among good soil represent people who hear the word, retain it, accept it, and produce fruit, and lots of it. These people become productive plants, that go on to produce good things in their lives. And that's what Jesus is going for, by the way. People who hear the message of the gospel, receive it, and respond in an earnest way that is not short-lived or shallow, but long-term and fruitful. And unfortunately, as we learn from the parable, that happens rarely. Jesus' point here is that not all who hear and receive the message of the gospel produce the fruit of genuine, lasting faith, but only those who listen with a good and noble heart. Now, what gets really interesting here, though, is why Jesus tells this story. You see, Jesus has a reason for everything he does. Jesus has a reason for telling this story. Jesus doesn't just get up out of bed in the the morning and say, hey, I got this great story I want to tell you. Jesus has a reason for telling this story, this particular story. And you can understand the reason Jesus has for telling this story if you look at the context in which Jesus tells it. At the beginning of the passage, Luke writes this. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town to town, he told them this parable. While a large crowd of people were gathering, people were coming to Jesus from town to town, he told them this parable. He didn't tell them another parable. No, he told them this parable. Now, why did Jesus tell them this parable? Well, the context is important to the story. I mean, imagine the scene. Jesus' ministry has gotten off to a bang. People are coming from all around. People are probably getting baptized. People are filling out all sorts of blue info cards. It's an exciting time for the kingdom of God. But Jesus knows what's going on. Jesus doesn't buy it. Jesus has been around a long time, long enough to know that not everybody who looks so excited to be there is going to last that long. He knows that even though a large crowd of people are growing up as little plants of faith all around him, a great majority of them won't last. Some of them are going to get distracted. Some of them are going to go home and forget what they heard. Some of them are going to be challenged for their faith. They're going to abandon ship. It's as though Jesus is saying, you know, hey, listen, glad to see you all here. Great to see, great to see you. you know, welcome to Rooftop. Happy to have you. Just curious, though, how many of you you think are going to last? Because let's just be honest. Jesus is thinking, what I'm looking for isn't shallow, short-term commitment. I'm looking for long-term faithfulness. The only sorts of converts that Jesus seems interested in from this large crowd with people gathering from town to town are people who might last. You know as well as I do that this has relevance on us for today, right? We live in America. We want instant results. We want our churches to grow. We want them to grow fast and big. Sometimes they do. 
Did you know that Rooftop had its largest ever non-holiday attendance two weekends ago? That's great, exciting, yay. But will these good things last? Will the people who decided to start going to church in January still be going to church in December? Will the people who are getting baptized still be following Jesus when things get hard? Jesus would say, in at least three out of four of these situations, no! I heard a statistic uh, a long time ago about the success, the success rate of huge evangelistic crusades. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a big crusade like the one that Billy Graham used to do. I'm old enough. I've been to at least a couple. And they're always exciting. I mean, if you've been to these crusades, uh, at, the, at the end, there's this invitation. You know, come down the aisle and pray the prayer and, and give your life to, to Jesus. Uh, give your heart and mind to, to Jesus. And it's all very, very exciting. And, and I've been there and I've walked down myself. But one time, some researchers actually decided to follow up with these people and see how many of them had really stuck with their new faith and and got involved in a local church. And I've actually seen a few different statistics here, a few different rates, but the retention rate of people who give their lives to Jesus at these large crusades, the retention rate is somewhere between 2 to 5%. Only 2 to 5% of new converts at crusades were living out their faith sometime later. Now, I'm not saying that large crusades aren't worth it, you know, that 2 to 5% of thousands of people is still pretty significant. I'm just saying that things can be deceptive. Jesus is not at all fooled by the large crowds. He sees a whole bunch of people showing up to hear his preaching, and he actually sees something else. What does he see? Honestly? He sees a whole bunch of people who, sadly, might be going to hell. It makes him sad. It even makes him mad. That's probably behind this really confusing verse in the middle of the story. Maybe you caught this verse. When Jesus' disciples ask him about the parable, Jesus says this. Jesus says, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that, quote, though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. Now let me share that with you again, because it's really important and very difficult. The disciples asked Jesus why he speaks in parables, and Jesus says this. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that, quote, though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. Now that quote part is a quote from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and it's an odd one, right? Jesus seems to be saying to his disciples, well, I'm going to explain everything to you, You, my little inner circle. But to everybody else, I'm going to speak in mysterious, hard-to-understand parables so that people don't know what I'm talking about. That seems to be what Jesus is saying. I'm going to explain everything to you guys, disciples. But to everybody else, I'm going to talk in really difficult parables so that nobody knows what I'm saying. Now, that seems to be what Jesus is saying. If he's saying that, he's a terrible teacher. And that's not how you're going to save the world, to keep things hidden from the people who need to understand them. Imagine Jesus talking with the Father. God, here's my plan. I'm going to tell stories that are so complicated and difficult, people aren't going to understand them. Sounds like a plan, son. Let me know how it goes. So what's going on? Well, keeping people ignorant is not the plan. We know from enough 
other examples of Jesus in the Gospels that he really did want people to understand. He used the parables to simplify things so that people could understand them. His goal was not to keep people ignorant. The key here is understanding that quote from Isaiah. That's a quote from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Like I said, hundreds of years before Jesus arrived, Isaiah was sent by God to announce a period of intense judgment on God's people, the nation of Israel. God had given Israel countless opportunities to repent of their sin and be forgiven, but Israel kept sinning very badly, so finally God decides to bring judgment. He commissions Isaiah to announce that Israel's enemies are going to overrun them, and there's nothing they can do about it. There is no chance for repentance. It's way too late for that. God tells Isaiah, announce my judgment to Israel, but in such a way that, quote, though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. I'm through with these people. Don't give them any more chances, he tells Isaiah. Tell them that my judgment is coming, but not in a way that they think there's anything they can do about it. I'm that serious here. Jesus sees the same thing maybe happening again here. He sees God's people, the nation of Israel, missing their opportunity to be saved. He sees them showing up to hear him preach, but then getting distracted or persecuted or bored and losing their faith as easily as they lose the TV remote. It makes him really sad. It makes him mad. And as he tells the story, he quotes Isaiah to the disciples, explaining that Israel is running out of chances. They might be excited right now, but their faith won't last, and they're going to be judged as Israel has been judged before. Every time we show up to hear the gospel preached, we run the risk of rejecting it again and being judged by God. Well, that's depressing, Pastor Matt. I thought this was a fun little story about seeds. It's not. Jesus doesn't teach fun little stories. He teaches stories of judgment to shake us out of our apathy so that we don't burn. Now, of course, Jesus isn't just upset here. Jesus is a complicated guy. Yeah, he's sad. He's mad at the large numbers of people who have come to hear him, but certainly aren't going to last. He's not impressed by the large crowd assembled before him. But in addition to being upset, Jesus is something else. Jesus is, dare I say, even maybe a tad, a smidge, hopeful. He knows that while a great majority of people will respond in shallow, short-lived ways, a small percentage of people will not. A small percentage of his listeners will hear what he's saying with open hearts. As he says, the seed on good soil stands for those with a good and noble heart who hear the word of God, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. This small percentage of people will hear the word, which will take root and produce good things in their lives. Not everyone will not last. Some people actually will last. You teachers know what I'm talking about. Uh, I know we got a lot of teachers here at Rooftop. Raise your hand if you're a teacher here this morning. We got a handful of teachers. We had a bunch of teachers the first couple services. You know, you teachers know, you're not going to be able to reach everyone in your classroom, right? There is no way you're going to be able to reach every single person in your classroom. A large majority of the people, I hate to be the one to break this to you this morning, if you're a young teacher, a large majority of the kids in your classroom do not care about being there. They don't even want to be there. Your responsibility as a teacher is to teach all the kids, of course, but what do you really got to do in order to just survive? You got to teach to the kids that care, 
teach to the kids who care. Sometimes you might just have one of them in your classroom. And I know it is your special joy to see those kids grow up and make a difference in the world with the knowledge you gave them. Honestly, it's why I'm a pastor here at Rooftop. I've been preaching here at Rooftop for nearly 20 years to an overall crowd now of thousands of people. Here's the thing, though. The majority of my sermons to the majority of listeners have been total, abject failures. Sure, we're a healthy, growing church, but considering the number of people who have come through these doors to listen to finely crafted, dramatic presentations of the gospel, (laughs) considering the number of people who come through these doors, we should be many factors more successful by now. But that's just not how it works, Jesus says. Most people, three out of four, don't last. But some people do. In fact, the kingdom of God at Rooftop has been built on those people who heard the message of the gospel with good and humble hearts and responded. It's because of that small sliver of folks that Rooftop is the church it is. It's by that small sliver of folks that we've been able to be a blessing to this community, that we've been able to build homes down in Mexico for families that didn't have homes down in Mexico, that we've been able to give resources to homeless people on the streets here in St. Louis and meals to the homebound. Not everybody lasts, but some people do. And healthy, growing churches around the world are evidence of that, that though most people don't last, some people do. Now, what's the main takeaway here from this parable for us, though? Is it to be not deceived by large crowds? Yes. Is it to be wary of God's impending judgment, which will happen someday? Yes. But I think there's another takeaway that has some practical value for us that I want to leave you with before we celebrate communion this morning. You see, what's the difference between the people who last and the people who don't? What's the difference? According to the parable, what's the difference between the people who last and the people who don't? That sounds like a rhetorical question, but it's not a rhetorical question. You tell me. What's the difference between the people who last and the people who don't? It's the soil. By the way, interns in seminary can't answer pastor's questions. You're going to get it right all the time. Okay, well, it's your second week here, so that's, that's the rule. I should have explained that in the onboarding process. First of all, do not answer rhetorical questions. <laughs> so the difference between the people who last and the people who don't last, it's the soil. The people who last are planted in good soil, good dirt. The people who don't aren't. They're planted in rocky soil, hard soil, weedy soil, bad dirt. And I think this is really important for us to think about. I really don't want to extend Jesus' metaphor too far. And I am, like, not, definitely not a man of the earth, <laughs> The closest I ever got to becoming a farmer was planting a lima bean in a styrofoam cup in kindergarten. But I do know that soil quality can be improved. In fact, there are professionals that specialize in soil assessment, evaluation, and improvement. When I was a kid growing up at my childhood home out in Creefcore, there was this big dead bare spot in the front yard by, by the mailbox, and my dad could never get grass to grow there year after year after year. So finally, he hired a soil analysis expert to come analyze the soil and give him some ideas. And I remember thinking, even at like seven, eight, nine years old, like, Dad, there are people who come do that, analyze the soil? It's like, yes, son, there are. <laughs> Every person has a soil quality. 
Every person's life has certain attributes that make it more or less apt to support a true and lasting faith. If we really want to be people with faith that lasts, I think it would benefit us to do some soil analysis. What's the quality of our soil like? Are we the sort of good dirt that Jesus describes? Now, what's good dirt? Well, good soil has certain attributes that I want to mention. Uh, I share these briefly so that you can do your own soil analysis, and I'll be brief. For example, good dirt is well watered. Crops don't grow from the nutrients of the soil alone. They need regular watering. They were designed to need water. This is true for people, too. Psalm 1 said, The righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. People who produce fruit are planted in soil that is regularly watered. What does that mean? What's the connection? Are you watering your soil regularly? Are you attending church regularly? Are you praying daily? If not, what reason do you have to think that your faith will grow and last? That's a rhetorical question, but I'll answer it for you. None. Also, good dirt is rich in nutrients. You probably know dirt isn't just dirt. It's filled with all kinds of organic material, the basic elements of life, minerals, nitrogen. It has to have a certain pH value. Good dirt can't be too acidic. Similarly, is your life filled with good things? Is your life filled with good people, good friends? Is your life filled with healthy media? Or is your life filled with bad things, bad people, bad movies, bad social media habits? Faith can't grow in soil that isn't rich in good things. It's why I try to surround myself Fill my life with good things, good friends, good people, good books, good music. These things are good, not bad for my soul. Unless you're very intentional about filling your life with good things, you know as well as I do, the world's going to find a way to fill your life with bad things. You've got to fill your life with good things. There are movies and there are TV shows that I really want to watch, but I know I can't because it wouldn't be good for my soul. I really want to watch Deadpool 2, but I know it wouldn't be good for my soul. I saw Deadpool 1. It wasn't good for my soul. <laughs> Why would I watch Deadpool 2? Thirdly, good dirt is free of weeds. As Jesus says, weeds, thorns, kill crop. Weeds grow faster than the crops do. You have to remove those things yourself. Weeds don't pull themselves. Good gardens take maintenance. When I was growing up out in Creve Corps, my mom kept a vegetable garden, and she would send us kids, all four of us, out in the morning to weed the garden, lest the weeds take over. Our lives require that too. We need to be constantly in the business of weeding ourselves. Sin doesn't remove itself. Sin grows. I mean, sin isn't some sort of static presence in our lives that's just kind of content to be there. No, sin wants to take you over. Sin wants to destroy you. You've got to pull that. As the book of Deuteronomy says, repeatedly, desperately, you must purge the evil from among you. If you have a sin problem in your life, as we all do, address it. Get some help. Talk to a pastor. Talk to a counselor. Talk to a friend. Talk to a small group leader. That's not just going to remain there, like, well-behaved. Maybe greed is consuming you. Address it. Maybe lust is threatening to take over your life. Address it. Maybe it's alcohol or drugs. Maybe it's marijuana. Maybe weed is your weed. You've got to purge that stuff or you'll die. Fourthly, good dirt is rested. 
Any farmer knows that soil has to be rested in order to stay productive. Overfarming with the same crop can kill soil. Crops have to be rotated. Soil needs to lie untouched every few years. Even the Old Testament actually says that the Israelites are prohibited from planting in the ground every seven years. They just can't touch the dirt. It's got to rest. The busyness of modern life in America is all well and good for the economy, although that's actually debatable, but it can be very detrimental for our souls. We need rest. I share this as a hypocrite. I bow at the altar of busyness, but I know that in order for my faith to grow, I have to stay rested physically, emotionally, spiritually. So do you. You have to fight to protect your sleep time. You have to fight to protect your God time. You have to protect your fight to protect your personal time. We could keep going with this metaphor for a while. I have a list of like 15 attributes of quality soil, but just one more. Good dirt is tilled. After farmers sow their seed, they till up the earth so that the seeds get buried down deep. Now, tilling can be a violent thing. Basically, the earth is cut with blades, is chopped up by a plow, and that needs to happen to people too. Our hearts are too hard. The seed of the gospel can't break through. The outer shell of our hard hearts, our hearts, our minds must be tilled. They've got to be rearranged. They've got to be broken up. This can be painful because it happens through suffering. Trial is unfortunately sometimes the only way the seed of the gospel can lodge in our hearts. Now, God is a loving father. He is loath to allow his children to suffer, but he knows that it is necessary for us. He knows of what suffering can produce in us, what tilling can, can do. As Paul writes in Romans, suffering produces. Think produce at the store. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. Character, hope. So what's the quality of your dirt? Are you the sort of soil in which the word of God can be planted and grow and last and produce the good things God wants to see in your life? Faith, goodness, love, self-control, purity. Is your dirt watered and rich and weeded and rested and tilled up? If it's not, nothing will grow there. Something might start, but nothing will last. Like the great majority of those who hear the word of God, your faith will sprout and then die, but it doesn't have to. And God certainly doesn't want it to. He wants his word to grow inside of you. He wants to change you. He wants to grow in you a faith that lasts forever. He wants to make a difference in the world through you, but you're going to have to find yourself some good and healthy dirt and stay planted in it for a while.